Dr. Allison presented the next case, a 58-year-old woman who presented in 2005 with a 4-centimeter ER-negative HER2-positive primary breast cancer with multiple liver and bone mets. Her initial therapy was given as part of a clinical trial. I enrolled her on a Tory trial. It was Mark Pegram's phase 1, phase 2 that was Herceptin and Avastin. And she stayed on the trial for two years. The first year she had improvement in her disease with shrinkage of her mass. And then for the second year she had stable disease. By that time she was tired of coming in every week for Herceptin and she just wanted to take a break. So I put her on Herceptin. We stopped the Avastin. And then she took some trips, went and saw her family. She had grown kids on the East Coast. She did well until after Thanksgiving. This is 2007. Then her scan showed that she had increasing liver meds that were about four centimeters. I then had decided that we would try Ticurb and Capecitabine, but she could not tolerate it due to the diarrhea. I even lowered the dose, and she told me she would never take that pill again. So we then talked a lot about what she wanted to do. She wanted to take a break. So once the stent was in, she went back to see her 90-year-old parents because she thought she'd never see them again. And when she came back, she had significant back pain. Her bone mets had progressed, and so I started on radiation therapy. The bone mets were painful. They improved with radiation therapy. And then she was kind of back at her usual self and was ready to try something else. Okay, so we have a question now, what to do in terms of systemic therapy in this lady with progressive HER2-positive disease. So let's start with, John, do we have data now? We've been talking about, actually, everybody in every other tumor talks about this, too, the colon people, the lung people. Well, you know, why did the breast people keep giving trastuzumab without the data? John, I think we saw a little data there at ASCO. There was the first positive randomized trial which fed into the prejudice that many of us had that we should continue Herceptin, but if there was an appropriate change of chemotherapy to be made. Cliff, can you talk about it's the German trial? Yeah, it's von Minkowitz. It's a little over 100 patients. It was closed early once lapatinib was made available in Germany. They claimed they could no longer randomize. They continued trastuzumab or stopped it when switching to CAPE after taxanes. And so it's precisely like Charlie Geyer's lapatinib study, except it's trastuzumab. And the shocking thing for many of us, John said it fit his bias, I will confess it really ran counter to mine, was that there was a near doubling of response rate and about a 50% improvement in progression-free survival. The very big asterisk is it's underpowered because it was closed long before it was supposed to, but it's still the largest experience we have. Yeah, I guess the thing that I was thinking when I saw that is what would we have seen if there had been a third arm Right. With lapatinib. Right. You have to kind of do indirect comparisons, and you also have to compare toxicity and side effects of lapatinib versus trastuzumab. What's your guess about that, Cliff? My guess is that for patients who have already been on trastuzumab and done well, that a comparison of continuing that drug or switching to lapatinib will make lapatinib look like the loser. Because of efficacy side effects or both? My prediction is the efficacy will be equivalent based on these data, but I don't know that. Assuming it's the same, the one difference is you've pre-selected a cohort of people who tolerate trastuzumab, and you're for sure going to have some of the GI and skin toxicities of lapatinib. So I think by comparison, it would look worse. So what was your take on that data, John? I think a lot of people didn't even know about that presentation. I didn't realize that the trial was going to be presented until I'd actually seen the abstract. Clearly, there is some mechanistic difference between Herceptin and Lapatinib. It may well be, and we don't know, that there will be an advantage for one over the other. That will be addressed in the current trials. It may well be that there will be an advantage for a combination of the two vis-a-vis one. 
Skip, what are you seeing in terms of people on lapatinib? And this patient had kind of, seems like a pretty bad experience, but how many people sail through it? I mean, what do you see? Sail through it, I think, I mean, that's a minority, I think. You're probably talking about 30, 40% of the patients that it's helped. We've given quite a bit of lapatinib, having participated in the trials as they rolled from phase one through phase three. There does seem to be that cohort of patients, and it's probably related to their hepatic metabolism, that are in that 10 to 20% that just have the diarrhea that's not controllable, and they identify themselves early. And I've had a few of those, and they just can't take the drug. So I want to maybe get a couple opinions from the panel. I'll go to you, Kevin, in a minute about what you would do with this lady. Would you give her chemo? Would you bring back trastuzumab? Sounds like she doesn't want to get lapatinib if you're going to give her chemo. Julie, the other question we brought up in terms of this issue of long-term management and adjuvant, too, is the combination of lapatinib and trastuzumab. And there was a pretty interesting data set presented at ASCO by Joyce O'Shaughnessy. Can you talk about that? She presented a trial at progression on trastuzumab going to either single-agent lapatinib or lapatinib with continuation of the trastuzumab. And these people were heavily pretreated. Lots of prior therapy. And there was an advantage for the combination of the two in patients who had received a lot of prior trastuzumab, as you point out. So what I also would point out in the study, and admittedly they were fairly heavily pretreated, was that in neither arm did they have a very long time before they progressed again when they didn't get any chemo with these drugs. So it might be that the two together are better than either alone, but it might be that some chemo with them is even better. Cliff? If you forgive me to make a plea, refer these patients if you don't have access to clinical trials. There are three classes of drugs that have above 20% response rates with trastuzumab in trastuzumab refractory breast cancer. TDM1, which is trastuzumab with mertansine. Pertuzumab, which is a subject of a randomized phase three right now. And there are already, most people don't know this, three different HSP90 inhibitors that are all active now for sure with trastuzumab, in trastuzumab, refractory breast cancer. So we are inching towards an era where we can get away from conventional chemo, but we need the patients on the trials. And there was a bunch of stuff presented at ASCO on that. And the TDM1 is really interesting. It's like the Trojan horse thing. Can you explain how it works? So TDM1 is five molecules of chemotherapy, four or five bound covalently to Herceptin, to trastuzumab. It is endocytosed, the bonds are broken, the chemo is delivered. And this happens to be an agent that is not safe to give intravenously. It's too myelosuppressive. The response rates in iron crops reports have been above 25%, and in measurable disease, it's actually about 53% for trastuzumab refractory breast cancer. But it doesn't stand alone. I have to jump in. Jose Basalga and Pierre Fumelo have shown pertuzumab, which binds higher up on the receptor compared to where trastuzumab binds. And in trastuzumab refractory disease, they give more trastuzumab and add the second antibody, pertuzumab, 23 or 4% response rate. And Shinu Modi has shown with tanespamycin, alvespamycin, and just in the last couple of days, we now know with an oral HSP90 inhibitor called Conforma 2024, that with trastuzumab and one of those HSP90 inhibitors, there's about a 23 or 25% response rate in refractory disease. So we are And I'm hearing that some of these are really clinically meaningful. Well, that's my point. They're responding and they're durable. So, but the key thing is none of them have toxicities like conventional chemo. And I dare say that their single agent activity, if you discount the trastuzumab, is greater than what people rely on for standard therapy. You give vinorelbine or gemcitabine or whatever in the setting. It's not as good as what we're describing here. What would you be thinking, John? Just that, you know, we do see such excellent results with chemotherapy, appropriately synergistic chemotherapy with Herceptin, 
and she really didn't have standard treatment. She joined a trial, did rather well with the trial, then had a pseudo-maintenance phase to her therapy with an aromatase inhibitor. I mean, I would have thought that the logic was that she should go back and treat her the way we would treat a de novo metastatic HER2-positive patient, which would be with a taxane plus Herceptin regimen, either docetaxel with Herceptin, or one could also make an argument for taxotere carboplatin Herceptin or single-agent taxotere Herceptin in this setting. I'd say she still would have quite a reasonable chance of responding to that and it might re-establish control of her disease. We have all seen such excellent results with the standard therapy of an appropriate synergistic chemotherapy plus receptin, and she hasn't had it yet. So I think she bravely joined a trial, got a good result with the trial, but I think at this stage she should be given a clinical, not a clinical trial, but a therapeutic trial of what would be the most standard approach, which would either be taxane alone with or without carbo plus receptin. Kevin, what would you be thinking about in a patient like this? Well, it seemed to me, as Dr. Crown said, that the patient didn't really have an adequate opportunity to show that she failed standard chemotherapy with trastuzumab. I did want to say that if we forget about this particular patient for a moment and ask what the right thing is to do when somebody progresses having received one Herceptin-based therapy. What is the right thing to do? Well, the right thing to do is to make sure the patient understands that she has choices, but if you're going to base your decision on the most voluminous and robust data, then the combination of capecitabine and lapatinib would be the technically correct thing to do. Having said that, of course, we don't do that all the time. Julie? In this particular patient, I think we heard she tried lipatinib and didn't do well with it and refused to ever take it again, so that's off the table here. But I do think that we do have data that capecitabine with continuation of trastuzumab is better than capecitabine alone, and I don't have a head-on comparison with capecitabine lipatinib. Antonio, the trial this lady participated in looking at bevacizumab and trastuzumab is now, that concept has been moved into the adjuvant setting with the so-called BEF trial. There is also the other major adjuvant HER2 trial being the ALTO study. Can you explain what those two studies are looking at, and what do you think about the research questions in these two studies? The clear answer is that we are in a completely new phase in the treatment of these subset of patients. In this case, 20% of the patients who present with her to a positive disease. And it is true that these drugs, in the sense adjuvant trastuzumab, has changed, in my view, the natural history of breast cancer to a dramatic way. I can tell you that I can count in the fingers of one hand how many patients that I have treated with adjuvant trastuzumab who have relapsed. And to the point that I'm almost not sure what to do with those patients when they relapse a couple of months or a few years after finishing trastuzumab. So I think the obvious question by ALTO is on the basis of the metastatic data is whether there is a role for lapatinib alone for use in the adjuvant setting. And I think we have sufficient data on the activity of lapatinib after trastuzumab as well as on the activity of lapatinib as first-line therapy for patients with metastatic disease that makes me quite comfortable with the current design of the ALTO study. So chemotherapy with lapatinib, with trastuzumab, with the combination or with the sequence. And I think that's a very legitimate trial design. And the study has finally activated in the U.S. in March. Most of you may now have access to the study. And we will see the accrual in the U.S. ramping up significantly. The study is accruing like gangbuster overseas, especially in Germany. 
And the other study, the BEF study, is actually asking the bevacizumab question in patients with virtual positive disease. What we have, we have ECOG 5103, which is a study of bevacizumab in patients with virtual negative disease. So that's about 80% of all the patients in the adjuvant setting. And the BEFS trial is asking the question for the remaining 20% of virtual positive disease, do you gain benefit from the addition of bevacizumab to trastuzumab to these patients? with HER2-positive disease. One final question to Skip. You know, Antonio was talking about the 20% of people with HER2-positive disease. What's your take on some of the recent sort of controversy about whether or not adjuvant trastuzumab might have benefit in people with HER2-low, normal, negative? There was the letter to the editor by Soon Paik and Norm Walmart from the NSAVP suggesting they found, I think, about 150 people in their trial who they felt were completely HER2-negative who had a benefit from adjuvant trastuzumab. They're kind of trying to confirm that. Thinking about doing a trial is kind of, like, shocking. What do you think about it? I haven't come to any conclusions about it. I think it's too early for prime time, certainly. I know the Oncotype folks, Genomic Health, working on having a quantitative look at the HER2, which will be helpful there. And it's interesting, Cliff, we presented the poster this morning on the DM1 trial, and some of those patients with central review are actually HER2 normal or negative and have benefited. So you wonder if you can deliver the antibody to the receptor and have the chemotherapy cleaved intracellularly if you get a benefit. But for right now, I don't make much of that data of of the benefit in the HER2 normal or HER2 low expressing group. Can I just say, the first thing is that to get on the adjuvant trial, somebody called them HER2 positive. There is a hubris here, which is that the central lab is right and that the local lab was wrong. I'm not sure that's right. Second thing is that there's clear heterogeneity within tumor specimens. There's a session tomorrow at the meeting that's going to talk about that. And so I think there could even be sampling error in part going on here when one central lab says it's negative and one said it was positive. We did a randomized trial. In fact, there are two with anti-HER2 agents in selected HER2 normals both negative trials. One is a CLGB 9840 randomized for trastuzumab. The other is for lapatinib. If you don't have the target, it looks like you don't respond. So I'm very worried that this is a distraction. And certainly we're not suggesting anybody should do this outside a protocol setting for sure. But the question is, maybe in a few years, are we going to have something for some of these other patients? Antonio, you're the dean of HER2. You were the head of the committee with uh, American College of Pathology and ASCO. And we actually did a five-hour recording recently. Antonio was present on just biomarkers in breast cancer. There's so much to talk about. What do you think about this issue of, is it possible adjuvant trastuzumab could benefit people with HER2-negative disease? So I think the data are definitive. There is no wiggle room whatsoever that in patients with metastatic, as much as one can be definitive in life, that in patients with metastatic disease, all the studies have shown unequivocally with lapatinib and trastuzumab, there is no activity in patients with HER2-negative disease. I think there's no controversy there. You're all aware of all the controversy right now, all the discussions in patients with so-called HER2-normal disease, whether it is possible that some of those patients may have a response benefit from the use of trastuzumab. And the only rationale at this point that could potentially explain the benefit is if we keep in mind that the so-called HER2-negative disease is something that does not exist. HER2-negative is a fixation artifact from formalin fixation and paraffin embedding in that when you look at the same specimens that are considered HER2-0 by immunohistochemistry, you actually, if you look at the same specimen now that has been frozen, 
and Michael Press has done some beautiful work with that. When you compare the formalin fix versus the frozen portion of the same specimen, the same tumor, that you see levels of HER2 expression that would be considered normal. So the issue is HER2 normal versus HER2 amplified or HER2 overexpressed. And it is possible, we have to remember that trastuzumab is an antibody. It's 10 years since the drug was approved by the FDA for the treatment of metastatic disease. It is possible that you may have an ADCC-mediated effect of the antibody. And there is now some preliminary evidence suggesting that polymorphism, variation in the FC receptors, could identify patients that could potentially derive some benefit or not from the use of trastuzumab. So who knows that perhaps for micrometastatic disease that an antibody-mediated effect may be in place, and that may be the only explanation at this point to justify a prospective study. I fully agree that these patients should not be treated outside of a clinical trial. So let's just follow up with the patient. What happened with this woman? Well, at the time, she didn't want her septin again. She was tired of coming and getting treatment. And I talked to her about going on Doxel. That was about three months ago. She's done well. Her heart's still fine. She feels good. In fact, she feels so good now that her husband's retired. They're tired of Las Vegas, and they're moving to southern Utah. 